Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. The Law. Beware, the bankruptcy court, or anything can happen to lenders, landlords, and investors. Apart from the IRS, the Federal Bankruptcy Court imposes the most powerful influence there is on lender, landlord, and investor rights. Anything can happen. Almost all previously bargained for rights on leases or loans or even investments can be changed. And the COVID-19 pandemic has only raised the stakes even higher. Take, for example, mortgages. In times of economic distress, certain borrowers who file bankruptcy can reduce the interest rate on a loan extend the maturity date on the loan, and even reduce the amount owing on the loan to the value of the security or the property. On leases, tenants on certain leases can reject the lease, continue to occupy the premises for a limited period of time rent-free, and can wipe out all prior rental obligations. For investors, Ponzi schemes are proliferating. Investors thinking that their investments are fully secured by real estate wake up in the bankruptcy court to find that their securities removed. They're pooled together with other unfortunate investors, getting pennies on the dollar, and in some instances even having to pay back thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in investment checks previously received. So today we'll examine some of these issues and learn of even greater surprises facing lenders, landlords, and investors in the bankruptcy court because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Then I'll discuss some of the challenges facing bankruptcy judges called to umpire these disputes with retired bankruptcy judge Alan Jaroslawski. Judge Jay served on as a judge in the Northern District of California for almost 30 years. He's got colorful stories and warnings to creditors that I think will be of value and interest to you. And finally, in our Where's the Love segment, we'll discuss how much love is enough. We'll discuss the recent decision issued by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in Martin v. City of Boise that was issued on April 1st. 2021. In this case, the court held that homeless people have the right to sleep and camp in public areas, and they can sue to prevent enforcement of local laws that prohibit such conduct, the rationale being that it violates the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment. Let's start with lenders secured by mortgages. Does your loan or lien survive bankruptcy? Depends. First, I need to start with the basics to give you a little bit of background. Let's uh, discuss the various chapters. First is Chapter 7 Bankruptcy. This is a liquidation. There's no requirement that a debtor pay back anything. It provides a brief breathing spell for a debtor and allows a debtor to discharge or wipe out unsecured debt. After this breathing spell is over, or even sooner if the creditor gets a court order, the debtor either pays back the mortgage delinquency or the creditor can continue with the default remedies. Contrast this with Chapter 13. It's a consumer reorganization. In essence, a debtor breaks down mortgage debt to what was owing before they filed bankruptcy, pre-petition debt, and pays it back through a plan over time. 
The debt is required to stay current on all mortgage payments to become due after a plan is filed. Another variation on reorganization is Chapter 11 and newly enacted Subchapter 5. Chapter 11 is a larger business reorganization. Subchapter 5 is a new creation for small businesses and individuals with business debt. In a Chapter 11 case, in essence, a business can provide a plan to repay debts, but there's no requirement that a plan be filed. In a Subchapter 5 case, a plan has to be filed in 90 days. So that's all background. The question for you as investors or for lenders is, what's the plan? The biggest threat to a lender is that a debtor will file a plan under Chapter 13 or 11 or a Subchapter 5 that will do all or some of the following. Reduce or eliminate the entire secured loan and make the whole loan partially or, or, or totally unsecured. Reduce the interest rate on the loan to current rates or extend the term of the loan. This can all happen in a reorganization. So I'll give you an example. And again, I'll try and break it down to make it somewhat simple, but uh, it can get complex. Take a rental property, for example, owned by a debtor. Let's say the property was worth a million dollars when you decided you wanted to make a loan. And you're an investor, and when you're going to make your loan, there's a first trust deed on the property in favor of Snidely Whiplash Bank. And again, the property's worth a million dollars. Snidely Whiplash Bank has a first for $750,000, and they're getting a 7% rate, and their loan's due over five years. You decide, hey, property's worth a million bucks, plenty of equity here. Snidely's only owed seven fifty, dollars so you'll make a loan because of the equity for $250,000 in a second trustee position, doing five years with an 8% interest rate. Sounds pretty good. However, two years later, the debtor files bankruptcy and the property is now worth $750,000 instead of a million. And interest rates have dropped now. The, the average rate in this type of loan is 3 or 4%. In a bankruptcy reorganization like a Chapter 13 and 11 or Subchapter 5, the debtor can't do anything to snidely because they have a first trust lien, deed lien on the property and they're fully secured. So generally, a lender's claim on a fully secured property can't be crammed down. At least the amount of the mortgage debt itself can't be crammed down. However, the debtor can file a plan that makes you completely unsecured because there's no equity supporting your second trust deed loan. Because if you remember, the property was worth a million. Now it's worth $750. Snidely's owed $750, so there's no equity protecting your lien position. What happens to you? You become completely unsecured. And if the debtor decides and their good grace is to pay back unsecured creditor 10% or 10 cents on the dollar, your $250,000 loan is now a $25,000 unsecured debt paid back over time. rest of your loan is wiped out. You might think Snidely did pretty well, but not so fast. Since this is a rental property and not the debtor's residence, the debtor can reduce the interest rate in the Snidely loan to 3% instead of the... Uh, 7% they had before, and they could extend the term from 5 years to 20 years. So all these things can happen. Uh, you've got to make sure that they don't happen to you. Think about it. Rates go up and down. Economics can change on a dime. A smart debtor can leverage up and buy a property a little down, and if the real estate market tanks, which has happened and, believe me, will happen again, a smart debtor can reduce the debt the interest rate and extend the term for years and then gain the benefit of a rising real estate market. So what do you need to know? Anytime a bankruptcy is filed, it's a red alert. You can't be passive. 
An automatic stay goes into effect, stopping your default remedies. However, the real danger lies in the ability of a debtor to change your contractual rights by filing a plan. Don't let the mortgage cram down plan happen to you. You've got to monitor for the filing of a plan, object when necessary, contest valuations and rate reductions so you don't lose your rights. Let's turn now over to landlords. What happens to you in a bankruptcy or what can? Landlords can be in an even more precarious position because of uh, COVID-19 impact. Remember what I said previously about the different bankruptcy chapters? Chapter 7 provides no reorganization, only a stay and a breathing spell for the debtor. But a chapter 11 or 13 can provide longer delay and more danger. A debtor filing bankruptcy has no obligation to pay rent after a filing. But a debtor in a chapter 11 has to assume or reject a non-residential or a commercial lease in 120 days, although they can even extend that time. So in the meantime, while the debtor should be paying rent, there's no requirement that the debtor do so unless the landlord acts promptly to have the court order the debtor to start paying rent or return the premises. And COVID-19 has dramatically affected small business lessees even more. Some, like restaurants, have legitimate business issues that, you know, that may be alleviated as the pandemic eases and their customers come back. Other businesses will never come back. They're just living off stimulus money. Others have business interests that aren't affected much by the pandemic and are doing fine. But a recent combination of state and federal eviction moratoriums and new cases in the bankruptcy court excusing requirements that even commercial tenants pay rent during the time period that they're supposed to assume or reject the lease puts more pressure on landlords to act promptly and preserve their rights. Landlords that were smart enough to obtain letters of credit to ensure performance of a lease may be in a much better position to ride out of bankruptcy. But for those who don't have such protections, acting immediately to petition the bankruptcy court for an order requiring that the debtor payers to stay or return the premises is critical. Uh, so let me, return, let me uh, turn to the last part here, which is Ponzi schemes for investors. And for those who don't know what a Ponzi scheme is, it's Ponzi scheme is when an, an investment company promises investors unusually high rates of return on real estate secured investments. The schemer gets the investors to send in the money and sometimes gives the investor a secured position like a deed of trust, sometimes just a promissory note with no security. And things usually work out for a while as long as new investors keep pouring in and keep sending in the money. In the meantime, the investment company stealing the money for themselves, either through outright theft or they're using the money to live large and pay themselves exorbitant salaries. So it's kind of like the game of musical chairs. The Ponzi scheme keeps on going until there's just not enough new investors to keep paying the old ones. And then lawsuits start piling up. And SEC investigations occur, and then the inevitable bankruptcy happens. The Madoff case is the biggest and best example of the Ponzi scheme, although I've been through many other local ones in my life, Golden Plan, and most recently Professional Financial Investment Services in Marin County, where... Uh, Unspeakable misery was visited upon especially elderly investors who thought this would be their key to life savings. While the results of a Ponzi scheme ending up in bankruptcy are too complex to cover in this short podcast, defrauded investors should be aware that the results of a bankruptcy can be the following. The investor can lose his or her secured status and can become unsecured, getting pennies on the dollar. If an investment is still in place and not paid off, the investor may be required to repay funds or interest payments paid by the investment company for years, possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars. Even if you were paid back on an investment and you thought you were 
out of the uh, the bankruptcy and with no problems. The trustee in bankruptcy can sue you to pay back the monies that you received, even the payoff of your investment. Investors should be aware they can lose not only their interest but their principal too. Anyways, the moral of my story, if there is one here, is that investment scams proliferate in times of speculation, just like we have going right now. Investors are desperate for yield, so you got to investigate thoroughly before you invest. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But most important, you should remember and keep in mind the fact that the bankruptcy trustee may come knocking at your door to get back the payments that you received when the times were good. Laws and Real Estate I'm here tonight with retired Judge Alan Jaroslawski. Alan served in the United States Navy from 1970 to 1973, went to undergrad school at UCLA, went to law school at Golden Gate, years on the bench from 1987 to 2017. And he says his favorite TV show of all time is The Good Place. And I, f I figured I'd ask you to start this off. Unfortunately, what was The Good Place? What was that about? It was a... It was a sitcom on NBC, but it was fairly intelligent. Uh, it had to do with philosophy. I'm going to check that out. I never. I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah, I think you would uh, be interested in it. I will check that out. All right, I got a couple questions for you here. Uh, first one is I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyways. It might be of interest to listeners. Is tell uh, tell me how you finance the startup of your law practice. <laughs> well. Um, I had, as soon as I started making money in the Navy, um, <clears throat> I bought a brand new Corvette, as many young officers did at the time, which uh, involved about 80% of my disposable income, but um, I took advantage of being able to buy one. And then when we were told that we were going overseas, it didn't make any sense for me to um, keep it. So I sold it and took an older Corvette in trade. Um, fast forward about eight years and I decided to open my practice and I needed $10,000, which is probably 40 or $50,000 in today's. Easy. Uh, money. So I went to the local bank and said, I'm a brand new lawyer and I'd like to borrow $10,000 to start my practice, please. And uh, the banker just laughed at me. He said, we do not have loans to bring new lawyers to start their law practice. He said, the only way we would do anything like that is if you had collateral. And I said, well, the only thing that I own free and clear is my car, which is now uh, 10 years old and has 250,000 miles on it. And he says, well, what is it? I said, that's an old Corvette, 1966. Pulls a Kelly Blue Book off his desk, flips through it, and says, yeah, we can loan you on it. Did you know the car was worth that much at that time? I didn't. It had, uh, when I bought it, it, I paid $1,200 for it. I figured it couldn't be more than $2,000, so I was very surprised by how valuable it was. 
Yeah, parenthetically, I, I think because you've always been into cars, and I, I think of the time that uh, you used to race uh, Mazdas and different things, and we went up and raced that, uh, or, or I wouldn't even say racing, but we went up to Thunder Hill. I brought, I had this brand new Mustang, and what what did you have at that point? You had your Corvettes, right? Um, what was I driving? I, I, I always drove a Corvette. I probably had my ZR1 on the track. Yeah. Um, well, they let you stay in the track. They threw me off the track. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's because you ignored everything I told you. That's true. <laughs> All right, next question. And again, uh, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert on, on the book you just wrote, but you served in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War. Those were tumultuous days and uh, polarization between young and old, massive social unrest and political turmoil. How, how do you compare those times to the most recent uh, unrest resulting in demonstrations, riots, and demands for change in social justice nowadays? Uh, well, as you said, it was tumultuous, and it's tumultuous now for different reasons. Um, uh, the way I look at it is I, I, I think Tumultuous times are normal in a democracy. That's one of the downsides of freedom is people take way too much advantage of it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be a baby boomer, which means I grew up in the shadow of World War II when the country, country was united from 1942 to the beginning of the troubles in Vietnam, which would have been in the mid 60s. So you and I both grew up in a time, a rare time, when most of the country was on the same page. And then of course, uh, the Vietnam War polarized the country again. It's been pretty much polarized since then. I mean, I would say from in my perspective, and again, uh, we can talk about the uh, the draft, uh, you know, d down the road just a little bit. But uh, you know, when I, I perceive that the institutions held more strongly during the Vietnam War, that there was uh, uh, tumultuous times, there were generational differences, but generally people respected the institutions. I think now that's crumbling a little bit. What do you think? That's hard to say. They definitely respected institutions more then, but uh, the country had won World War II. Uh, the institutions that, that the country had had worked, got through the Great Depression and won World War II. So there was more respect because there was more success. That's an interesting point. All right, let me change the, the uh, direction a little bit. So I'm, I wrote a question here. Uh, this is the bankruptcy courts often the first court to face both legal and economic issues resulting from the economic downturns. And so if, if you would compare the impact and magnitude of the 2007-2008 mortgage meltdown to the results of the COVID-19 pandemic and the need to balance the rights of creditors to enforce contractual rights versus the need to protect consumers or businesses. The, my only answer to that would be that 
sometimes history does not repeat itself uh, in the uh, the Great Recession uh, starting in 2008 uh, my work as a bankruptcy judge skyrocketed went from about Oh, 1,800, 2,000 cases a year to 5,000 cases a year for about three years. And we were totally swamped. Uh, with the uh, latest pandemic shutdown, bankruptcy cases are a few hundred cases for uh, what would have been my area. It's uh, very slow. Uh, so obviously there are other things at work this time around than before. The government obviously is stepping in and assisting people and that's keeping people out of bankruptcy. Do you think that's short-term or long-term? Do you think there's going to be a tsunami or do you think that uh, the, the economy will heal enough that uh, there won't be an onslaught of bankruptcies? Well, I think there could be a tsunami if if there is inflation and interest rates rise. Right now, people can borrow their way out of trouble very easily. Uh, real estate prices are rising. Uh, interest rates are low. Uh, so it's pretty easy for people to figure out something to do that does not involve bankruptcy. If interest rates start to rise, money starts getting tight and people cannot borrow their way out of trouble anymore, then you might see another tsunami. But as long as interest rates stay low, I don't see a whole lot of uh, consumer work in the bankruptcy business. All right. In a bankruptcy reorganization during a time of declining interest rates and property values, a skillful debtor or business can file a plan that can do all the following. Can reduce interest rates on a loan to current market rates? can eliminate liens on real property when the value is less than the lien, and it can extend the term on a loan for, say, as long as 30 years. Why is this fair to creditors who bargain for specific contractual rights, and why shouldn't the creditor be allowed to share any increase of any value in the property or obtain a higher rate if uh, rates rise over the term of the plan? Well, to quote from The Good Place, the word fair is the stupidest like stupidest word in the English language, aside from staycation. <laughs> um, fairness. It's not a question of fair. It's what what can be done and what are the social benefits to doing it. So the people who drafted the bankruptcy code. Uh, created a fairly flexible system with a, a lot of discretion for the judge as to what particular circumstances uh, those things would be uh, approved. And it's a matter of balancing uh, the hardship to some creditors, perhaps, against the overall benefit to society. Generally speaking, if you can keep an entity going, turn it profitable and uh, not have to uh, 
lay off a bunch of employees, generally speaking, the society is better off. All right, so taking that as, uh, I agree with that. Let's say, for example, though, uh, again, the creditor's taking the haircut in the plan. Things are bad. Uh, you want to keep the widget factory going, everybody employed. But if it turns out the widget factory starts booming and they're making tons of money, shouldn't the creditor share in that largesse as well down the road? Well, that's bankruptcy is generally a matter of negotiation. If you think that's a possibility and you represent the creditor, bargain for it. But you as the judge, I mean, that's so, so uh, intractable positions, the, the creditor uh, says, say, you know, they're paying me artificially low interest rate. I have a 10% loan and they want to pay me 3% now, but inflation, like we talked about, it's, it's going to be back to 10 again. Uh, confirm the plan, but give me something that, that uh, lets my rate go back to somewhat near contract rate if it turns out that uh, the debtor does well. Is that unfair? Well, my reaction is you're negotiating with the wrong party. <laughs> I'm the judge and it's, it's for me to decide whether a plan is fair or not, which is a pretty nebulous standard. So your argument to the judge is don't confirm this plan, it's not fair. And try to get the judge to say no, so that people have to go back to the drawing board and negotiate something which the judge may find is fair. Now I remember, I'm just, anecdotally, I remember I had a case before you once and uh, it was just, you know, we're arguing over valuation. There was a trial and, and basically uh, it was an 1111B election case. And it was probably one of the first, you wrote a little memorandum on it, but uh, that was your your eventual result is that, hey, you're giving these the creditor, you're telling the debtor's attorney, you're giving them nothing. So I don't blame them for not wanting this plan. And uh, you're, I think, consistent with what you just said, go out and make a better plan or else I'm going to have to rule on it. Um, yeah. that, the real world. Yeah, but negotiating with the judge generally is not truthful. You want to negotiate with the parties. Well said. Um, all right. In some instances, the bankruptcy code allows a debtor to file bankruptcy and obtain financing that gives a new financing lender priority over all prior lenders, generally known as super priority financing under Section 364. So, for example, a lender A makes a $10 million loan to fund the construction of an apartment complex. The borrower defaults, mismanages the project, and files bankruptcy. The borrower then comes into the bankruptcy court with a new lender, lender B, who will loan another $10 million to finish the project, but only if the bankruptcy court orders that lender B is, or excuse me, lender A is subordinated and put behind lender B. So if there's ever a further default, lender B is paid first. Why is this fair? Well, because the collateral of the Lender A is being improved by the money loaned by Lender B. So uh, it seems totally fair to me, all other things being equal, that you pay the second lender first because that lender is uh, furnishing funds to finish the project. Uh, and as a result of that, is increasing the overall value of the project. Good, good. I'm really saying it so people can get the hang of it because it happens all the time. Yes, it does. There again, uh, the key issue is fairness. You know, if you convince me that the 
debtor is incompetent and that the new funds are likely to be wasted, then maybe it's not fair. Well, all the things being equal, it makes total sense. All right, switching uh, gears here. Tell me about the most unusual case or debtor you encountered in uh, your many years as a bankruptcy judge. Uh, what that, comes to mind? It has to be Jesus Christ. <laughs> tell, tell us about him. I was walking past the uh, courtroom deputy's office and she's going over the calendar. And she gets to one debtor and it, she says, what is this debtor, Jesus Christ? And one of the other clerks says, no, 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 it's pronounced Jesus Christ. Ah, so we get into court. The courtroom deputy calls number four, Jesus Christ. And a guy in scraggly hair and a beard and sandals walks up to the podium and says, it's pronounced Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I say, oh, and I ask a couple of routine questions. And then I say, your application to proceed in forma pauperis, that is without having to pay the fees, is approved. And he says, bless you. <laughs> so I guess I got that going for me. Yes, you do. All right. Um, you've written a lot of decisions. Many have been appealed. What published? Well, I don't know about many. <laughs> I've seen a few myself. Some. I've seen a couple. Which published case that you've decided are you, are you the most proud of and why? I know most judges will answer that question with their famous case. Uh, I, my job was just as best I could to apply the law to the facts. So there can't be any case as far as I'm concerned that I'd be more or less proud of than anything else. I mean, for instance, I saw another judge of our court who would not, um, who I won't name, would answer that question was, well, I wrote a, uh, 25 page decision, published decision, uh, which allowed this debtor to keep his home. He'd be most proud of that. My reaction is, well, it's 25 pages because it was just wrong. And you're not being, you're being proud of your result, even though you twisted the law to get it. Yeah. There is no case that I have where I'm proud of the result. It's only the process. Apply the law to the facts and uh, I tried to do that in every case. So there's no, no case that I'm more proud of than any other case. Now, I respect that. I mean, in this day and age when everybody's got their agenda, that, I, I definitely respect that. I'm going to give a little anecdotal note because I, like I said to you before, uh, there's one case I remember. And again, when I clerked for you, uh, when you were an attorney, and I remember 
Uh, I have a faith in God, and I'm I'm clerking and doing a lot of uh, different work for you. And one day you asked me to move some boxes or whatever. I don't know what it was, but I'm pouring through these boxes, and I see this appeal to the Ninth Circuit, and, I, and I'm looking through it, and I see you're appealing uh, the right of somebody who basically believed that getting a social security number or being required to have a social security number was the equivalent of the mark of the beast. So I came to you and uh, I was very much interested in, in all the biblical issues going on. I was starting to get into that. And I, you, you, know, I, I, you didn't have any interest whatsoever in the Bible, but you had a tremendous interest in the idea of upholding this man's right, whether you believed it was ill-conceived or well-conceived to be able to believe that. And I think you won that appeal, didn't you? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it went up to the circuit twice, and I won both of it. I won both times and ended up uh, getting my client paid. He, It wasn't his Social Security number. He, he balked at having to get a Social Security number for his infant daughter ah. so that they could get AFDC. You know, it, it's funny. Uh, when I first started practicing, I had a lot of time on my hands. I didn't have many clients. And one of the agencies, trying to remember, I, I think it was CRLA, asked me if I'd be interested in taking the First Amendment case uh, pro bono. And yeah, I, I said, sure. Uh, and it was a very interesting case. and. Uh, the district judge was very hostile to it, but the circuit was receptive to it. Uh, and I learned a lot. And also the circuit judges learned who I was. And since the circuit judges were the ones that appointed the bankruptcy judges, it couldn't have hurt uh, for me to take the case. Uh, but. People seem to think, I don't know if you thought this way, that I cared deeply about the religious issues. No. I took a case, and it was my job as a lawyer, to make the best possible argument that I could. I'm not accusing you of being a religious zealot. Make, <laughs> make no bones about that. But I, I did, I respected the fact first that First, I was interested in the subject matter, but the fact that you did that, I thought it was great. My most vivid memory of that case is my client and I had to do a deposition in San Francisco. So we drove my car, and the first time we, we tried to go, uh, one of my tires exploded. So we couldn't make the deposition. I mean, it was not easy to get over the side of the road. It wasn't just a blowout. It was an actual explosion. Uh, so the next time, you know, a couple of weeks later, we went in and had the deposition. And on the way back, this car, this old, crappy, it's like a Chevrolet or a Ford, 15, 20 years old, smoking, uh, exhaust fumes, just a rattle trap thing, cuts us off and damn near kills us. I had, it was on the freeway, I had to slam on the brakes mm. and it was a close run thing. 
But the thing that I remember most, not kidding you, the license plate of that car was DVL 666. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild. <laughs> I think you did you, you did the devil a, uh, a bad term. That's good. I appreciate that. That's a, that's a good story. All right, let me switch here. Uh, Ponzi schemes. So Ponzi schemes, especially now, they seem to proliferate in times of economic excess. Agreed? Say that again? They, they generally proliferate in times of economic excess. Ponzi schemes have been with us good times and bad times for a long time since the original Ponzi. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, there's, it seems like there's a, a resurgence, at least recently, at least in my practice. But, you know, for a basic recap, investors get roped into real estate investment schemes with the promise of high yields, only to get little or nothing when a bankruptcy is filed. And Madoff's probably the most famous example. I remember when, when I was practicing uh, Golden Plan and you had Woodson, right? They're good examples, but Professional Services, Inc. and Marin is a recent example of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of people uh, being swindled out of them. Uh, in many Ponzi schemes, investors who are paid money early on in the scheme are often required to pay back these funds years later when they're elderly and they're scared, uh, sometimes to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why is this fair? Well, <laughs> because the people that got screwed are elderly and scared. I mean, uh, I don't know how many times uh, when I was a lawyer, uh, an, an old widow would come into my office with a fancy uh, parchment certificate, and I'd have to tell her it was absolutely worthless. It's just been a victim of a Ponzi scheme. Uh, but, uh, the whole idea in bankruptcy is to get treat people as fairly as possible, which means you take back something from the people who made out like bandits and share that with the people at the end who got totally screwed. But you can't say somebody who made out like a bandit can't come to court and say, I'm old and scared now, so please don't take any money from me. Well, <laughs> there's old and scared people who got screwed. All right, let's let's remove the old and scared part. Let's let's let me try it from this point of view. Let's say I'm a shrewd investor. I'm young, and I go in there and I say, "I good, you're ten ten percent to interest rate. I love that. I want a secure deed of trust to make sure that I'm good. I go to the title company. They ensure that it's there in the proper position, and then." Uh, years later, they come back and they void my deed of trust because uh, it's it's deemed to be a, a fraudulent conveyance. Why is that fair? Why shouldn't I be able to rely on what they promised me and what I go to the title company to get when I make my investment? Well, you say you were shrewd. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you should know if something is too good to be true, it's not. So you took advantage uh, and tried to make out like a bandit and protect yourself in something which should have smelled to you in the first place. So I really don't have a terrible amount of sympathy. All right, I thought I'd get, you out of the, I'd get some sympathy out of that one. All right. All right, let me switch here now. You recently wrote a book called Memoirs of a Citizen in Uniform. Almost done with it. I like it. 
and it was about your time in the U.S. Navy how, and how you believe one of the the pro uh, you know the prologue said that it engendered camaraderie that uh, you had that basically uh, you didn't think people who did not serve in the military together could ever experience. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I just wrote it because in the my years as a lawyer and a judge, I have met people and said to myself, this person would have really done well in the military. You've got the, the personality for it, the humanity for it. And uh, you never served and you thought you were lucky, but maybe not. Maybe you missed out on uh, a, a valuable experience. There's something to be lost by having an all-volunteer military. Uh, I think it's a lot healthier to have citizens serving a brief amount of time. Uh, not only is it better for the nation, but I think the individuals get something out of it. I'm not advocating a war, uh, but uh, there's a lot of responsibility in the military that you really can't get anywhere else. That's a good, that was my follow-up question is, because uh, again, even in that point in time, I was subject to the draft. That was the last year they had it. You think now if they instituted the draft, people would go willingly or would there be riots in the streets? Well, I would be an advocate for some kind of public service, whether it be the military or something like the Peace Corps or volunteer service for a community. Uh, but um, very few people remember JFK. Nobody these days asks what they can do for the country. They all want to know what's the country going to do for me. Right. And that's kind of sad. No, I, I wholly agree. I remember sitting around a, a dorm room. Again, it was the last year of the draft. I was playing Monopoly. There's about four or five of us around the board, and uh, we're listening to the numbers come on the radio. And mine was like 140 or 50, and you know, I think they only drafted or took maybe one from 30. And the guy across from me was like number eight. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 was, I always think back, you know, what if it was reversed and I was, you know, the one who, you know, ended up in Vietnam or, uh, but you're right. I mean, it, it would have changed things dramatically and, and it's some sort of experience where you give of yourself. I, I totally think it's missing nowadays. All right. Final question. Uh, sage words of advice to anybody uh, thinking of becoming a judge. What would you tell somebody? Yeah. Watch what you post on social media. <laughs> of course. Um, take down that picture of you wearing the party naked t-shirt. <laughs> um, these days, anything you say is like up there forever. And if you're ever up for any kind of a public position, people are going to dig that stuff up. And especially when you're young, young it's real easy to say something stupid. Uh, but these days, that stupidity will be with you long after you've matured. So if you want to be a judge, be smart. Good words. Thank you for taking the time. Appreciate it, Alan.
My pleasure. Everything else that matters. Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? In the case of Martin versus City of Boise, issued on April 1st, 2021, no April Fool's joke, the U.S. Court of Appeals held that it was cruel and unusual treatment for the city of Boise, Idaho to enforce regulations prohibiting homeless people from sleeping or camping on public property. The court held that criminal prosecution for such actions was prohibited. There were some really angry dissenting opinions. For example, Circuit Judge Smith probably said it best, and I quote, In one misguided ruling, a three-judge panel of our court badly misconstrued not one or two, but three areas of binding Supreme Court precedent and crafted a holding that's begun wreaking havoc on local governments, residences, and businesses throughout our circuit. Under the panel's decision, local governments are forbidden from enforcing laws restricting public sleeping and camping unless they provide shelter for every homeless individual within their jurisdictions. The panel's reasoning will soon prevent local governments from enforcing a host of other public health and safety laws, such as those prohibiting public defecation and urination. Perhaps most unfortunately, the panel's opinion shackles the hands of public officials trying to redress the serious societal concerns of the homeless. As part of his dissent, Judge Smith presented a picture of tents lining the streets on an L.A. public sidewalk to show that this isn't just an academic argument, but it's a ruling that will only make a bad situation worse. Now get this, what the majority opinion in this case, the Martin case, is holding is that you can't criminalize homelessness and camping out in public areas if there's no place else to sleep. To get to this result, the court relied on interpretations of prior U.S. Supreme Court cases that held that you can't really punish someone for their conduct if it's involuntary or if they're powerless to change their conduct. For example, uh, alcoholics can't help themselves from drinking, even in public. What they do is not voluntary, it's part of their condition. What one of the highest courts in the land is saying in this case is homelessness is a condition, like being an alcoholic. You can't help being homeless, and if you can't find a public shelter, you have to sleep somewhere, so why not on the public streets or parks? And you can't be arrested or fined for doing it. What's wrong with this argument? Is, is this too much love? Homelessness is exploding everywhere, and it's complicated. There are those who suffered economic calamity, drug addicts, those with mental illness, there's old hippies and new slippies, slippies, socialist, liberal hippies, who are out to find themselves or act out their anger in the streets. But what happened to personal responsibility and to law and order? Since when did being homeless become a condition to allow someone to ignore or break the laws? Think about it. What if the next step is that the homeless can sleep on your front lawn or in front of your business? And don't laugh. It's happening right now. In the city where I live, they sporadically allow homeless encampments at the public library right next door to doctors and dentist offices right alongside the library. We spend billions and billions of dollars locally, statewide, and nationally to combat homelessness. And more than any other time in history, the problem is getting worse, much worse. Perhaps we should look at, at the root causes of homelessness, such as the disintegration of the family, or relaxed standards for drug and alcohol use, or the removal of all sexual norms as some of the root causes for the problem. 
Instead, courts like in the Martin case are declaring homelessness a condition that has no solution except suspending the rules of law and tolerating lawlessness. Whatever the solution, taking away the last vestiges of personal responsibility for the homeless and making it a condition that can't be avoided is both demeaning to the homeless and it makes the problem worse for me and for you too. When the rule of law breaks down, we are doomed as a society. I know from personal experience that enabling dysfunctional conduct such as drug and alcohol use cannot and will not in any way turn away people from addiction. Addiction, homelessness, and any other tragic conduct must be faced with both mercy and accountability, not just tolerance. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos!